Well, let's take our Bibles this morning, and we're going to continue our march through the book of Mark. And today, our passage will be three short verses, Mark verses chapter 8, verses 11 to 13. Let's turn in our Bibles there this morning. Mark writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit... The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we tackle our passage this morning. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. We thank you for its richness. We thank you for the fact that you have given it to us and you expect us to understand it. And we thank you that you communicated it in in a language, in human language, that we can understand. And so I pray this morning as we hear the truths from your word, that first of all, they will be true, that you will protect your word and nothing that is true or untrue will be heard this morning and only what is true. I pray that you will be glorified in the hearing of your word, in the preaching of your word, and then in the obeying of it. So I pray again that you will build us into the image of your Son, to the glory of your grace here this morning, in your name, amen. I once had a conversation with a man, and he, it went sort of like this. I said... This man, we'll call him Man B. Man B believes that every single scripture has 70 meanings. Not one meaning, but 70 meanings. To which the reply was, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. So I said, well, I actually went to his website and I looked at the website and this is what was said on the website. I don't believe you. So I said, well, maybe, maybe I got a wrong website. Maybe, maybe I actually, maybe I, I got the wrong guide. Have you looked at that website? No, I have not. Have you looked into anything that this person believes? No, I have not. Well, I said, well, I'm telling you, this is what this man believes. I don't believe you. Now, at this point, you're like, what do I do? I mean, this is, what, what can I say to convince this person? I have researched it. I have looked at it. They haven't, and they simply don't believe So in in a moment of great insight, I finally said, there's got to be something else. What what is going on here? What, what, What is going on? Why don't you believe? And it turns out that it was me. You did something I don't like, didn't like, and I'm angry at you. And so the problem is not that of proof the problem is you. 
And so it wouldn't have mattered how much proof I brought. It didn't matter how much truth I brought to the table. The issue was not whether it was true. It was whether they wanted to believe it because it came from me. I was the problem. I, the source was the problem. It wasn't actually the truth. And how often does that happen in life where we bring evidence to people and we, we give it to them and we say, hey, look at this, look at the truth, look what we have to say, and people say, I don't want, I don't believe it. And now, is it because the evidence is incredible? No. It's because oftentimes the evidence that is brought forth comes points to a conclusion that they don't like. And they don't want to have to change. They don't want to have to do something different. They don't want to have to change directions because they already like what they're doing and what you're telling them goes against everything that they already like, everything that they already are comfortable with and everything they already know. And really, it's in oftentimes, it's, it seems like you're dealing with a five-year-old mentality because it doesn't matter what the truth is, they've already have their mind made up. The sky is up, no it's not. The sky is blue, no it's not, right? And there's just this continual, I don't believe it. I've chosen not to believe. And this morning we're really dealing with exactly this in this passage this morning. The Pharisees are really in this very same boat. It is not evidence that is the problem. It is the fact that they are willfully, willfully unwilling to actually listen to the evidence. They are in willful unbelief because they have chosen not to believe. And so the Pharisees are, are like those five-year-olds who simply say, I don't want to hear it. I've already got my mind made up. I don't want to know. And this morning, as we've been coming through this chapter, we've been, we just came through Christ's coming through the Gentile territory. And he has done one of his three withdrawals out of Galilee to go to Gentile territory. And he is gone to that Gentile territory and he has met with great success if you want to call it great receptivity to what he has said they have wanted to hear what he has said remember the feeding of the 4,000 they all stayed for what three days without eating because they wanted to hear from him they wanted to be with him they wanted to be here more. We, we saw as we went through the feeding of the 4,000, there was this personal attachment to Christ, something he had never encountered when he was in Galilee and in Jewish territories. We saw in verse 10 that he had come back to the district of Dalmatha, and he, had, he was really back on, in Jewish territory. And it doesn't take very long for him when he gets back to be met again with opposition. And again, he is met with the unbelieving Jews. And really, in contrast to the belief and the acceptance that we saw in the Gentile territory, we see the hardened unbelief of the, of the Pharisees here this morning in these three short verses. 
And they, ha- they are, again, willfully ignorant of Christ. And this morning, we'll really see three results of that hardened, hardened unbelief. Really, three things that result or three things that are, are apparent or come about in hardened unbelief. And the first thing we'll see here in this hardened unbelief is their unwillingness, their unwillingness to accept the evidence that they had. It says, the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him and seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. So it's like Christ arrives on the we- coming back to the west side, coming back to the Jewish side, and it's like he is ambushed. In fact, the, the word for coming out here has the idea of coming out in ranks. It's the idea of a kind of almost like military. They're coming out of hiding, and it's almost like he comes, he steps onto the west side, and there they are. They are waiting for him almost like in an ambush, and they come out in a military rank. As they come walking out, they are, they are primed for battle, and they are ready to confront him. And it says, they began to argue with him and seeking a sign from heaven. And the idea is this. The argument is this. You're not the Messiah. You've come, you've claimed to be the Messiah. You've come to claim to be the Son of God. You've come to made all of these claims. But the reality is, we don't think you are who you say you are. You think you're making all of these big claims and you're strutting around Galilee and doing all of these things. We can explain what you've done. You're really not the Messiah at all. And in fact, you need to convince us. You need to convince us that you are the Son of God. And here's what we need from you. We need a sign from heaven. We need a sign from heaven. We need a miracle. We need something that's going to wow us. Now, just in case you think I'm being too hard on him, it says they came to test him. The word test here has the idea of attempting to entrap through the process of inquiry. These these Pharisees are not looking sincerely for truth. They're not looking for evidence that they somehow are missing and they're going to, if they just have that one proof, they're going to believe in Jesus Christ. They're going to accept him as the Messiah. They're going to repent of their sins. That's not what they're looking for. They're openly hostile to Christ. They're not looking to believe in him. They want to entrap him. Because after all, if, if he says, okay, I'll give you a sign and he can't do it, they've got him, right? He's a hypocrite. He's a liar. If he says, I won't do it, they've got him too, right? <laughs> Chicken, right? Can't do it. Told you he couldn't. We, we, we dared him to and he didn't. They think they've got him. They're hostile to him. They've come out to demand a sign. It's interesting, if you look at Matthew chapter 16, records this same incident. It says that the Pharisees and the Sadducees came out. 
Isn't that interesting? Again, this is how we know they're hostile to them because now we have two, two groups that are hostile to one another have come together against Christ. We saw that earlier in Mark, didn't we? With the Pharisees and the Herodians. Christ had healed the man with the withered hand. He had healed him on the Sabbath. They were outraged. And they said, hey, we got to get rid of him. And so the Pharisees, who were the religious uh, conservatives in, in Palestine, those who wanted a, he a Hebrew king, got together with the Herodians, who were the Gentile supporters, who wanted a Gentile king, and were politically involved to keep Herod and his line in, in power. They got together, and they wanted, it says, it says they wanted to destroy him. They just didn't want to get rid of his ministry. The idea is they wanted to kill him. And now the Pharisees make another unholy alliance with the Sadducees. They were the Aristocats, Aristocrats, not the Aristocats. That's the movie that my kids watch. <laughs> so we'll have to edit that one. So they were the elite. They were the ones who ran the temple. And they were a strange mix because they were, they were in essence, the liberals, but on one side, they only held to Scripture. They didn't hold to any kind of, of traditions like the Pharisees. They only held to Scriptures. They, in fact, they only held to the five books of Moses. You'll remember the story when Christ was settling the dispute between the Pharisees and the Sadducees about the resurrection. The problem was that the Sadducees would only take the five books of Moses and so you had to get resurrection out of the five books of Moses and so they had argued for years on that only to have Christ come along and say I am the what the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob present tense they are alive because I am still their God and so here are these two groups the Sadducees who were liberals who took scripture and they interpreted it spiritualized it allegorized it and the Pharisees, who were more common with the people, the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection, who believed in life after death, who were looking to put the messianic king on the throne. And so you have these two bedfellows who are politically opposite, striving maybe even for power in the Jewish population and all of a sudden, these two opposing parties who really agreed on nothing, agreed on one thing. That they needed to entrap Christ. That they needed to get rid of him. Now here's the sad thing. Did they need a sign? Did they need a sign? Was there something missing that they somehow needed more evidence? Well, let's take a look. When Christ, remember this, the Sadducees and the Pharisees are the keeper of the law. They know scripture better than any of us. Remember, they used to have a test where they would take a nail and they would drive it through to a page and then they would say, what letter is missing? I mean, it's crazy. They knew the scriptures backwards and forwards, so they should have been aware 
of some of the things that were required for, for the Messiah when he came. When Christ came preaching and saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, he was offering them the kingdom and he offered them salvation if they would repent and believe in him. And yet, they refused to believe. But they should have known that the scriptures gave them some clues as to who Jesus was. Maybe they couldn't just take him at his word, but there were some things that were to take place that they should have known. They should have been opening their Bibles and recognizing that in, in Micah 5.2, it said that the Messiah would come from the town of Bethlehem. From the town of Bethlehem. Well, guess what? Where was Christ born? The town of Bethlehem. Well, minimally, we would have to say there's one prophecy, take it or leave it, that at least Christ it wasn't contradicting, right? Secondly, it said he was to be of the line of David. The Messiah was to come from the line of David. Where did Christ come from? From the line of David, on his father's side and his mother's side. He had it double. He met that requirement. He was to be virgin born. This one's a little harder to prove. But there was certainly the rumors, there was certainly the idea that she was pregnant out of wedlock. It says that he was to be worshipped by influential people from afar. Psalm 72.10. Remember the kings of the east? They came to worship. They came to worship Christ. Another prophecy fulfilled. How about the killing of all the children? Again, Jeremiah 31.15 tells us that the children were going to be killed when the, when the Messiah was born. Did it happen? They were there. The Pharisees should have were alive to see this. How about my son shall come out of Egypt? Hosea 11.1. 1. Where did Christ go to escape Herod? Egypt. Here are all of these prophecies coming true. And they were there. Now how about this? It was prophesied. In Isaiah 40, verse 3, that there would be a forerunner who would come before Christ. Can anybody doubt the historical reality that John the Baptist was there? That he came, right? He proclaimed, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. There's one coming who is going to baptize you in the spirit. One whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He came. They should have recognized it. What about Christ's baptism? It says in Psalm 45, verse 7, that he would be anointed by the Spirit. Now remember when John baptized Christ, what happened? Right? The Father, a voice from heaven... This is my son in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit came down like a dove and rested upon him. These things were seen. 
The evidence was there. These predictions, these promises were coming true in Jesus Christ. He fulfilled them all. If they were honest, if they were truly seeking, they should have been able to line these up and say, yes, this is the one. What about his miracles? What about his miracles? If we just look through the book of Mark, we see the marvelous miracles that Christ did. He cast out demons. He cast out the thousands of demons out of the, out of the demoniac in chapter 5. Right? He healed the withered hand. He cured leprosy. He raised people from the dead. He raised up Peter's mother-in-law. He healed thousands of people in front of them. He fed the 5,000. He healed, he fed the 4,000. Creative powers as he created food. Was there a lack of evidence? Was there a lack of evidence? Not at all. What there was was a willful rejection of the truth because they refused to believe what they heard and saw. John's gospel rightly says, the difficulty lies in the will, not the intellect, as far as acceptance of the signs of Jesus. In other words, it is, it, what we have here is a willful rejection of the truth. They could see who Christ was, they could see the evidence, but they willfully chose to ignore it. They willfully chose to ignore it. That is always the case with those who can continue to come back and demand truth from us. We often mistake people's enthusiasm and we mistake people who come and argue with us that they are interested in the gospel. The problem is not evidence. The problem is the willingness to accept evidence. Do not be fooled by those who continually come back with arguments and ask you to fulfill them. These people are not seeking the truth. They are actually demonstrating their rebellion against God. It sounds counterintuitive to some degree because we always just want to give people more information because we figure if we give them more information, they'll be convinced. The problem is not the evidence. The problem is a hard heart that is unwilling to accept it. The Pharisees didn't believe because they didn't want to believe. Their request for a sign was a smokescreen. They weren't interested in him. They weren't interested in believing in him. They were showing their unbelief. We must expect that when we go forth and give the gospel. People will throw up smokescreens and they will throw up excuses and they will throw up all kinds of ideas and ask for proofs. The idea is not 
The problem is not the proof, is that they refuse to accept it. The Pharisees rejected Jesus because they they he wasn't who they thought he was going to be. It's not what they expected. It's not what they wanted. And so they rejected him. And when we share the gospel and we show people who Jesus Christ is and we, we give them the word of God, we should expect nothing less. There will be those who will simply reject it because Jesus is not who they think he should be. And so this morning, the question is, is there anyone sitting here under the sound of my voice who has seen the evidence, has read the word of God, who has been given the gospel, and you say it's not enough? Are you like the Pharisees? Is it really the evidence the problem? Or is it the fact that you are unwilling to bow your knee to Jesus Christ? And so this morning, I ask you, Are you like the Pharisee? Or have you accepted the evidence of who Jesus Christ and who he claims to be? Well, their willful rejection of evidence leads them to be refused more light. And this is really the downward spiral of the hardened unbelief. Starts with willful rejection. It leads to a refusal to God to give you any more light. Look with me at verse 12. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And so here is Jesus. You can imagine his, his reaction. He's just come from the Gentile world. He's come from a place where people are anxious to hear him. People who have stayed, again, we said, three days without food just to hear him. And he's back on his own soil. He's back with his own people. He's come back to the very people he was sent to. He was sent to the house of Israel and they are again attacking him and arguing and rejecting him. And it says he groaned in spirit. He sighed, sighed deeply in his spirit. This word occurs only here in the New Testament, only 30 times in, in Greek literature. And it's, expression, it's not an expression of anger and indignation as much as dismay and despair. And Christ is brought to despair because, again, he has he is given all the proof that he can. He has done everything that is necessary, and yet they continue not to believe in him. And so there's a sense of weariness and grief that has penetrated the depths of his heart at this point. Because what more can he do for them? What, what can he do to reach them? There must be somewhat resignation here. They simply refuse to believe. And Jesus says, why does this generation seek a sign? Why do they look for this? Why do they, why do they want this? What, what do they need? What more can I do for them? 
He says, truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And here, surprisingly again, instead of Christ saying, oh, here, I'll give you another sign. After all, I've done lots of them. Christ has reached the point where he says, listen, I have given you enough light. I'm not going to give you any more. You will not get a sign. I will not give it to you. I will not respond to an unbelieving heart. I will not respond to a heart that is in rebellion to me. I will not respond into a heart that is trying to disprove me. That's not faith. That's rebellion. I will not respond to it. And he says, I will not give a sign to this generation really denoting the the nation of Israel represented by by their leaders. And Christ is really just saying, listen, I'm not giving you anything more. I'm not giving anything to you. I've been with you. I've lived among you. I have come and shown you who I am. He echoed the same idea in Mark 9, 19. He answered them and said, Oh, believing generation, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Christ is is at his end. The Jews have rejected him. They have continually rejected him. They have continually set him aside. This phrase here is is really a, a Jewish idiom. It says, if, if a sign shall be given to this generation, may I die. The idea here is, I will never, ever give another sign to this generation. I would rather, I, it would be my death to give them another one. Christ is so at his end with this group that he will not give them a generation. Now, Matthew records that he says, except for the sign of Jonah. And really, The sign of Jonah, Jonah is the idea of Christ's death and burial and resurrection. And Jesus says the only sign that this generation will get, and it's really not a response to their their request, but the only sign that will be given will ultimately be Christ's death and resurrection. And we know even then, how did that turn out for them? They even rejected, not only did they reject him as Messiah, they rejected and his resurrection as well. And so here are these Pharisees coming and saying, listen, we want a sign. We want a sign like, like you did with Joshua, with the sun stopping in the sky. We, we, want, we, want, we want Elijah, fire from heaven. We want rain. We want manna. And Jesus simply says, no, no. You don't need more signs. You don't need more evidence. What you need to do is to believe. And the problem with giving signs is this, and you will find this. The more you give people information, the more that you answer all of their questions, the more questions they have. If Christ gave them a sign, he would have to give them what? Another sign. It's never enough. It's never enough. There would always be a need for another miracle. There would always be another need for another confirmation. They need signs. It's the same way with people today. The more you give them, 
The more after you've given them the full gospel, the more that you answer their questions, the more that you continue to battle them, they just need more. If you gave them a great sign, they would just need another sign, a new sensation. And we need to recognize that signs don't save, right? They don't. It does not produce faith. All the evidence is here already. We don't need anything more. What saves is faith. That's why Jesus, remember when he was, the story of Lazarus? Then the rich man, Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom. And the rich man says to Lazarus, go back. Tell my brothers so that they don't end up here. And what was the response? If you don't believe Moses and the prophets, what? You won't believe if someone is raised from the dead. And so Jesus says, listen, I will not give you any more light. I will not give you any more truth. You have enough truth. And this is one principle we need to understand is that God does not give you more light than what you respond to. Do you hear that? He does not continue to give you light and give you insight until you deal with the truth that he has with you already. That's why in Romans chapter 1, it says that God has given everyone a knowledge of God. And he has given everyone enough light to know that there is a God, that he exists, and that they, that they need to seek him. And every person, regardless if they have heard the gospel or not, is condemned to hell based on the knowledge that they know that God exists, but they have rejected it. And God only gives you enough light that you respond to. And so this morning, as we sit here, are you responding to the truth and the light that God has given you? And if you're unsaved here this morning and you have already heard the gospel and you have heard who Jesus Christ is, he is not going to give you some sign. He's not going to give you some more knowledge. He's not going to drop something into your lap, some supernatural experience. He expects you to respond to what you have already heard. And there will be a time when you have rejected the truth that he has already given to you that he will simply stop revealing any more truth to you. And that is a dangerous, dangerous spot to be. Because he will not, as it were, throw his pearls before a swine. He will not continue to give it out. And we must recognize also that as we share the gospel there, that this is the same principle that we take with us. There will come a time where we have given people all of the light, all of the information that is necessary. And if we continue, all we're doing is using energy and hardening their hearts as they willfully reject the truth that they have. And there may come a time where we simply have to stop giving the truth. Now, that's counterintuitive to us, isn't it, a little bit? Because we just want to share, and we feel compelled that we've got to do it. We, we feel compelled that we need to, and we need to be doing more. But there will become a time where we will have to back off as well. Christ did, right? Christ said, enough. You've had enough. 
I will give you no more light. Proverbs 23.9 Do not speak in the hearing of a fool for he will despise the good sense of your words. Proverbs 18.2 says A fool takes no pleasure in understanding but only in expressing his opinion. We need to understand that there gets to a point where people are not responding to the light. The thing is we need to be careful. Are we make sure that we're not this person? That we're the one who has a rejected truth to the point where there is no more light. What a scary thought that God no longer will reveal any more truth to you. That what you have is what you get. And so again, what is holding you back? What is keeping you from coming to Him? What is keeping you from believing in Him? The evidence is there. The evidence is there. The word of God is clear. Jesus has come. He has died on the cross. He has risen again. You don't need more evidence. You need to believe. Well, verse 13. Really, we've come through the fact that they were willfully rejecting truth. Secondly, Christ refuses to give them truth. And here really... We go that downward spiral, the third step. Christ abandons them. Christ abandons them. Look at verse 13. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. Now, this could be just the fact that he's transitioning and he's leaving. But the idea here in context, I believe, is that Christ is deliberately leaving them. He's deliberately leaving them. We will see as, he, as we continue through the book that the emphasis of his ministry continues to be narrowed to his disciples in a close group. He is done really dealing in a large way with large groups and with, with, the, with the Pharisees and the leadership. And there's a sense here of, of Christ leaving, but he is leaving with purpose. He is leaving in judgment. They will not accept what is true from him. And so he is simply now removing himself. He will no longer strive with them. He now has abandoned them and left them to their own devices. This is a fearful thing. This is probably one of the the saddest and scariest verses in scripture. And we don't think about it, but it is. Jesus just left them. He abandoned them. He left them to their own devices. We must remember, just like in Genesis chapter 6, God will not always strive with man. He will not always strive with you. He will not always continue to come after you and to give you truth and to give you opportunity to respond to it. But there will come a time where he will abandon you to your sin. That's pretty scary. He will abandon you and he will leave you to go your way. He will give you exactly what you want. He will give you the desires of your heart. He will give you over to your sin. We see that in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1.
verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now it says the wrath of God, and a good translation of, of this would be is, re, is revealing, is being revealed present actively right now. In other words, God's wrath is continually at the present time being revealed against all men who suppress the truth, against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. In other words, God's wrath is being seen present now in the present tense this isn't future judgment this is present judgment this is happening to people now because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them that's what I talked about earlier God has placed in every human being the reality and the knowledge that God exists that is part of being human. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes and his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made, through that which is made, so that they are without excuse. So in other words, God has revealed himself through creation. Creation now shows us God. It, it's general revelation that, that we see his glory, we see his power, his divine attributes, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as, or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to, to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image and form of corruptible man, of birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. So men knew God. They rejected him. They worshiped the creation rather than the creator. Man was created to worship. He was created to worship God. He always worships. It's just what he will worship. And because of their rejection of truth, because they suppressed the truth, therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. This is the wrath of God's abandonment. He has simply removed his restraint. He has backed away and he has said... You want to sin? I am going to let you sin. I'm going to let you sin unrestrained. I'm going to remove your conscience. I'm going to let you go. I'm not going to have my Holy Spirit work on your heart. And I'm going to give you all of it. And you will reap the wrath of God because you will now sin more than you would have ever before because you have no conscience. You are given over to it. It is your life. You are free to do it. And you are heaping up the wrath of God upon you because God has abandoned you. And this is exactly what is happening here this morning to the Pharisees. They have willfully rejected the truth. God has withheld his, his light for them. And now Jesus has abandoned them. And now they are beyond hope. They are at the point now where the salvation is gone. Because God has removed his hand from them. And he has said, you want your sin? You want your, your way of life and your immorality? Go. You reject me. You will not believe the truth about me. I will give you over to your false religion. I will give you over to your false ideas. And I will no longer, I will no longer restrain you. This is a monumental and massive thing that is taking place. 
This should scare us. If you've never come to the salvation in Jesus Christ, this should scare you to death. We don't know when God does this. We, don't, we can never tell you that you are abandoned by God. But we do know this, that there comes a time where God will remove his hands from you. And he will no longer restrain you from sin. He will let you go and you will sin without remorse. And you will get, build yourself a wage you will, that will be paid in judgment of God's wrath and eternity and hell forever. And so this morning, don't let yourself get to this point. Do not reject the truth that you see in Jesus Christ. Don't reject the truth of the gospel. Don't reject the truth of scripture. But before you get to this point, cry out to him. Cry out to him for forgiveness. Cry out, ask him to help your unbelief. Ask him to give you repentance that you might not fall to this point where you no longer receive light and are abandoned by God and given over to your sin. Remember, if your heart is pierced this morning, then he has not abandoned you and so this morning, look at the evidence. Look at who Jesus Christ claimed to be. He was the Son of God. He came to earth not to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life for many. He's died on the cross to pay the price for sin. He stood in the place of all who would believe. His sacrifice sufficient for all, effective for those who believe. He says, if you will believe in his finished work, not on anything you've done, not on your works, not on your, not on your background, not on the church you go to, not on your family, but you put your trust, not in what you've done, but in what he's accomplished on the cross, in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He says that he will accept you today. He will make you his child. He will be your savior. And so this morning, let us not be like the Pharisees. Let us not be those who willfully reject the truth, who are cut off from the light and abandoned by God. Let us be those who respond to the truth that is before us, asking God to open our eyes that we might accept Christ for who he is. Let's close in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for this warning this morning. It is, it is stern. We know that. But Lord, help us to be those who accept your truth. I pray for anyone under the sound of my voice who's unsaved, that they might be uh, stricken by your word, that they might be, have their eyes open, that they might see Jesus for who he is, that they might accept that evidence. I pray that we as believers would accept what the Bible has to say for our daily lives and that we would live in obedience. Thank you that if we're yours, we never have to fear abandoned by you, that you will never leave us or forsake us. And so we thank you for that. I pray that you would help us again to be those who accept fully who Jesus Christ is in your name.
Amen.